from Acts, the 8th chapter, verses 26 through 40. The Lord's angel said to Philip, Go south along the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip left. An important Ethiopian official happened to be going along the road in his chariot. He was the chief treasurer for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, and the officer had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was now on his way home. He was sitting in his chariot reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The spirit told Philip to run and catch up with a chariot, and Philip ran to close and heard the man reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. And so Philip said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the official said, How can I understand unless someone helps me? And he invited Philip to come up beside him. The man was reading the passage that said he was led like a sheep on his way to be killed. He was silent as a lamb whose wool is being cut off and he didn't say a word. He was treated like a nobody and did not receive a fair trial. How can he have children if his life is snatched away? The official said to Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So Philip began at this place in the scriptures and explain the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to a place where there was some water and the official said, look, here is water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to be stopped and they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And after they'd come up out of the water, the Lord's Spirit took Philip away and the official never saw him again, but he was very happy as he went on his way. Later, Philip appeared in Atticus and went on from town to town all the way to Caesarea telling people about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Unless you are really, really into geography, you probably don't notice when directions are given in a story or in a book unless you try to retrace the steps of the story. My first sabbatical was back in 1999. And my older brother and I took several weeks and we began in the little town of Independence, Missouri, which is really Kansas City now. And we retraced the Oregon Trail. We went across Kansas, and Nebraska, and Wyoming, and Idaho, and on into Oregon. And in a number of places, we camped literally in parks along the trail. And we followed as closely as you can follow in an automobile. Uh, there's lots of places where you're on the other side of the river from where the actual route was. Now, direction was pretty important for this. So we had books and we had maps and we had a compass and a rather primitive GPS that didn't work all that good, but that uh, was 99, you understand. And we also had the ability to ask directions and turn around and retrace our steps. Direction was pretty important to us. So, some of you will remember the novel that came out about that same time called Cold Mountain. Anybody remember the novel Cold Mountain? It was an acclaimed book. It won all kinds of prizes in American literature and I hated it. 
I hated the story, first of all, but I really hated the geography. If it was fiction, it was the geography that was fiction. He didn't get any of it right as far as I could tell. Now, sometimes direction in Scripture is important, even though we may not understand or pay attention. The text from Acts today is used as a part of a story, but it also frequently leads to a kind of a misunderstanding. I finished reading that portion of the text that says, the angel says to Philip, get up and go to the south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a wilderness road. Everybody heard me say that? It was up on the screen. And that's how most translations read, south. The problem is the word south in other places is not the word for south at all, but it is a time. Direction, time. So it can read, get up and go at noon to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It is a wilderness road. Now, in some ways, the, to go south doesn't make a lot of sense anyway because if you're going from Jerusalem to Gaza, you're going south. Everybody would have known that. I also know that for our purposes, it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference whether we translate go south or go at noon. But I want to argue that in this case, it may actually have an impact on how we understand the text. Get up and go at noon into the desert. That's one way you can say this. And you know it's desert because it says it was a wilderness road. And when the Scripture says wilderness, it means desert. It's not going from Gatlinburg across the mountains. It's nothing like that pretty. We're talking about a desert. Like so much of the rest of Acts of the Apostles, this narrative is initiated by who? Holy Spirit. And that's led more than one commentator to say what we call Acts of the Apostles shouldn't be called Acts of the Apostles at all. It ought to be called Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who forces or conjoles or convinces apostles to get out there and do these things. And after all, we are almost Pentecost, right? Now, the text that I read, the translation I read, is a more modern one, and so it cut out the part about the Ethiopian being a eunuch. We adults know what that means. But it was cut out for sensibilities, I suppose. He's on his way home from Jerusalem where he had been worshiping, although it is clear that because of his ethnic background, he wasn't a native Jew. He probably wasn't even a full proselyte. And part of that is because of his physical condition. Maybe he was there in Jerusalem because he had also read in Isaiah the promise that foreigners as well as eunuchs will be accepted in God's new kingdom. 
And so the man who Philip meets on the road to Gaza is a representative of a marginalized and excluded group like all the other marginalized and excluded, and excluded groups down through history. Coming as a post-Easter story, it becomes a story of the expansion of God's kingdom. When God says, we're going to include all these outsiders now. Philip is portrayed as being obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He does what he's told, even if it seems odd. And to go out into the desert at noon in the heat of the day would be exceedingly odd if you didn't have to. But he is obedience. And it's essential that he was. He meets the man who says, how am I going to understand unless somebody helps me? Boy, isn't that the truth. He seems to be drawn to the faith, but how is he going to understand unless somebody helps him see the bigger picture? And so Philip not only witnesses about what he's reading, but to the good news of Jesus and so he witnesses not only in his explanation, but also in his gracious actions to this inquirer. And yet again, the most interesting character in the story is the one that's hidden. It's the Holy Spirit. The angel drives Philip from Samaria to Gaza at noon. The Spirit directs Philip to approach the man who is a foreigner and a stranger. And trust me, this guy was the treasurer. He wasn't traveling alone. And the third, when the baptism is completed, the Spirit snatches Philip away and he's not seen anymore. God always uses human beings as a part of God's big picture. And Philip's important, but everything here is because of the relentless prodding of the Holy Spirit. And so the question I would ask today is, in, the, in our church, in this church, in this place, what evidence do we see that the Spirit is pushing us to reach outside the boundaries we think we know. Think about that one for a while. It will come as no surprise that a great many of those churches we call mainline are struggling. The great growth of the past has declined, it's slowed, and in some places it's gone into reverse. It affects mission and budget and outreach and everything else that happens in the life of the church. And the simplest thing to do and what I see so often is that everybody wants to find somebody to blame. But that is not usually very worthwhile. The deeper truth, of course, is, is that the world around us is changing and if we want to keep up, the church had better find a different attitude. One of the attitudes that I keep hearing from the church goes like this. We're going to keep on doing like we've always done and others will just have to get used to it. Church can do that. I've had church members suggest that we should never 
attempt to change anything to make it easier for an outsider to get through the doors and feel comfortable. And you can do that. I'm going to suggest that it's not the most helpful way to grow a church, but you can do it. The pastor tells the following story. He says, in my last congregation, we were struggling. The congregation had been in decline for a number of years. We were struck like many urban churches with a building that was too big and a congregation with resources that were too small. Our only hope is to get more members. And so they agreed they would begin a program of evangelism. Scare Presbyterians to death. We won't survive another year without members. If we don't have an influx of new members, we won't be able to keep the roof over our heads. Anybody heard that somewhere? And so they hire a consultant, and they set some goals, and they teach a series of classes about how to be evangelists, and they spread out throughout the neighborhood, knocking on doors and handing out pamphlets. And the results were, huh, anybody want to guess? Paltry. Almost no response. And unfortunately, that's pretty typical of churches who decide they're going to create a system of evangelism. So let's look at a different story. The story you've already heard. At first glance, this lesson from Acts is also a story about evangelism. Someone the Ethiopian, is being evangelized. But when we listen to the story of his conversion, it becomes a judgment on the way we tend to do evangelism. Now I'm going to repeat myself. Please note, Philip didn't start this. Philip was hiding in Samaria from all the persecution that had been going on in the church when he is sent to go out into the desert at noon. Somebody's noted that when God wants to do something unusual, God usually sends a heavenly being to get us to listen. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not with my own eyes ever seen anything that looked like what I thought was an angel. But numerous times I have been struck with this feeling, this belief, this knowledge that I need to do something that's outside the ordinary because God was saying, do it. Have you ever felt like that? I expect you have but I really don't expect you to acknowledge it in church. So don't tell me God doesn't use messengers. They just don't always look like we think they're supposed to look. So Philip goes. He does what he's told. Not sure why he's doing it. The Ethiopian is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and it's one of the suffering servant passages that every Christian knows we apply to Jesus. But he doesn't understand what he's reading. So he asks. And Philip is given this wonderful opportunity to say, let me tell you about that. And he does. He must have had a bit of time to explain as they rode along together because suddenly 
The Ethiopian says, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Was the water a miracle? Was it an oasis in the desert? He had time to tell him about baptism because it's the Ethiopian that opens that question. But what it comes down to is that the kingdom of God expands. It reaches into a different culture, a different situation, out in the desert and all the way down to Ethiopia. You know, part of the oldest church in existence in the world is Ethiopian Christians today. Yeah, the Coptic church in Egypt also extends in a different version down into Ethiopia. Our church, I believe, is being pushed and prodded and sometimes pulled by the Holy Spirit to do something different, to do something new. The question becomes, what is it and are we going to listen? It's easy for us to begin to believe that the primary purpose of the church is to keep the church just as it is. We're going to look after the church because that's all we really know how to do. It is embarrassingly easy for us to decide that our boundaries are God's boundaries. We do it all the time. We're pretty comfortable with each other the way we are. But what happens if there is an influx of people that are different? I read recently about a conversation that a church exec was having with a young woman who worked out of a denominational office. And he was asking a question about a communications committee. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there. I'm, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. And he said, vacation? And she said, no, not really. I'm uh, actually going to work for two weeks in a women's prison ministry. And the official says, well, I'm proud of you for doing that. And she said, I don't do it for me. But I do it for some rather selfish reasons all the same. After working at this level of the church, it is a place where I can find spiritual renewal with people who really can't believe that God's for them too. People who are surprised and grateful that God loves them. I suspect Philip and she would have gotten along pretty well together. If we're left to our own devices, I suspect that this church and any other church will just hunker down where we are and we will be content to do things the way we've always done it and reach out to the same people we've always reached out to. But if you've paid any attention to the Scripture over the last few weeks, you notice after the resurrection, Jesus is always in motion. And therefore, the disciples are always in motion. It is not the disciples who go find Jesus. It's Jesus who comes and finds the disciples. And my suspicion is, is that Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, however you term, decide you want to term that, is already busy in the lives and hearts of people that we haven't figured out yet. 
but we need to be thinking about. If Philip was surprised, and I think perhaps he was, how surprised are we going to be when God says, there they are, go. So is the story about evangelism, or is it about mission, or is it about worship, or is it about all of it together? And maybe it raises this idea that we aren't allowed to differentiate anymore to whom we tell the good news. Because the good news really is for everybody. Even the foreigner and the different. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.